The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Psalm 50 A Psalm of Asaph The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes? Or take my covenant on your lips. For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This morning, as you can see in Psalm 50, we are going to picture... Judgment Day. This is the last psalm that we'll be going through this summer. This is Mark's five years now that we've been going through the psalms, and we're a third of the way done. So, ten years from now, we'll be finished with the book of Psalms. For today, we're going to picture Judgment Day. What do you picture when you think of God's judgment that He's bringing to the earth? Maybe... Some of you picture it as a favorable day. And I think there's ample evidence, don't get me wrong, in the Scriptures to think of that day favorably. But some of us may be thinking it's going to be favorable when those people over there get what's coming to them. I'm not pointing in any certain direction, just, you know, anybody but me, right? Like, yeah, just some of those people over there, when they, when they get what's coming to them, that'll be a, that'll be a good day. Or, or maybe, maybe you fear that day. Maybe when you think of the coming of Christ and 
everybody's standing before the throne and, and all of the turmoil around Judgment Day and all of the things that would be taking place then, maybe you, you look on that day with a little bit of apprehension, maybe a little bit of fear. Maybe you think to yourself, I know what sins I've committed and I don't really think favorably about that day. In fact, it's a day of, of trembling for me. Or maybe you have no idea what to expect. Maybe you're like probably the vast majority of people thinking, I trust in Christ, but I don't know what that day's going to look like. I'm, I long for it, but I, I don't really know what to expect. Psalm 50, sitting in front of us this morning, is a warning. It's a glimpse of Judgment Day. It is very clearly, for everyone that reads it and sings it, a glimpse of Judgment Day that is approaching. I want you to look with me at the first few verses, and you'll see this scene that's being set for us by the psalmist. Starting in verse 1, The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Sea to shining sea, you might say. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge his people, gather to me my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. So there's this picture that Asaph sets here at the opening of the psalm where God is seated on his throne and he's seated in Zion, which, as we've seen in previous psalms, is that picture of His holy city where His throne rests. It's God's city. It's the place of His, the epicenter, you might say, of His kingdom or His throne. He's described as the perfection of beauty shining forth. So what that means, I think, is that the, He commands all the attention in the room. Nobody can look at anything else because God is the perfection of beauty and He is shining forth such that sunglasses won't help you at all, if you get my drift. So He commands the attention of the whole earth and everybody, the whole earth, is summoned before the throne. However, around the throne is a devouring fire. That's not good. When you hear the devouring fire is there, the temptation is to think, I might be going there, right? That's the picture of judgment. So while he is beautiful, he is also mighty. As such, we not only have the devouring fire, but we also have the storm that's around him that presumably is being held back by him. In other words, he commands the storm, he commands the fire, it is all there at his beck and call. But I want you to notice, though he summoned the whole earth, his goal, as he says in verse 4, is to judge his people. 
In verse 5, he gathers his faithful ones. The ones who have made a covenant with him by sacrifice. So the world is summoned and presumably is there watching as he judges first the people in his own house. His own people. So just to set the scene for us in this psalm, God is seated on his judgment seat. Everything about him is communicating that he has all power, that he has all authority to judge, and he's calling before him everyone who would ever be considered his people. But you understand this psalm is a good thing. Now, I know that scene has a little bit of fear to it, doesn't it? There's the fire, there's the tempest, there's God on His throne commanding all the attention, there's power and authority, and there's a temptation, I think, to read the psalm and have a little bit of a quiver or a heart flutter, thinking that this might be a bad thing. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. But this is a good thing because this is a pre-judgment judgment. This is a warning to His people. And we know that because if you look down at the end of verse 21, He makes it clear. He says, But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Well, He didn't throw them in the fire. He says, I rebuke you and I lay the charge before you. Verse 22, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So this message that's now given to his people, this message of judgment, by anyone who would be considered his people, these are words of warning of what judgment day will be like. He's urging them to listen to the words that I've laid out in front of you, the charges that I've laid before you, lest if you don't listen to them, the day of judgment will come and it will look just like this, and I will tear you apart, and there will be none to deliver you. The message from God is really asking His people a very important question. When you come before me and worship, why are you doing it? You, my people, need to ask yourself, why am I here? Why do I come before the throne of God and bow down in worship of Him? See, this judgment is coming against all who worship God with wrong motives, which is what the psalm is going to spell out. That's what the content of the warning of the rest of this psalm is about. He's warning them about improper worship of Him. That you come before Me with improper motives in your worship. So it's really asking a question to all of His people that are there before His throne in worship. Why is it that you're here? Why are you coming before my throne to worship? So with that as the setup of this psalm, let's look at the warning that he is 
giving to us. First, we see God's word of warning to the religious worshiper. God's word of warning to the religious worshiper. Let's pay attention to whom God's judgment or His word of warning is coming. Notice in verse 7. He says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. First of all, in case you didn't get the message already, it's made clear yet again that this address is not to those people out there who will be receiving that judgment one day. That we might be looking forward to. No, no, no. That's not where it begins. It begins first, very clearly, with my people. He says, hear, O my people. Second, the issue that's being addressed have nothing to do with the number of sacrifices that His people are bringing. You might say, well, the improper worship clearly is that they've made some mistakes in the Levitical law as they sacrifice their lambs or their whatever, and they're bringing improper sacrifices before Him. That isn't the case either. Notice what He says in verse 8. Your burnt offerings are continually before Me. It's not for your sacrifices that I rebuke you. They are sacrificing all the time, perhaps even, we might say, to the letter of the law. You see, these are people who come to worship God out of those religious obligations. They come obeying the letter of the law, doing exactly what God, it seems, has required of them, but it also seems that their hearts, and the problem God has with them is not their sacrifice, it's that their hearts are far from Him when they come in, sac- in sacrifice. When they come in worship. Their sacrifice is out of a sense of obligation because they think they are providing God something that He would otherwise be lacking. I've got to come and I've got to bring my praise. I've got to bring my sacrifice. I've got to do it this way because otherwise God won't have my sacrifice. And so I've got to come and deliver it to Him. So they are fulfilling a checkbox of religion, an obligation that they've got to God that in some sense they feel appeases what He wants. But you understand they have no real sense of desire to be there. It's not from their heart that they're giving these sacrifices, much less do they have real love for Him at all. If you look in verse 9, He says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. Look at verse 13. He says, Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? See, the problem is that in their worship, they've gotten things twisted. They've misunderstood what it is that they are actually doing when they come. It seems as though over the course of time, through their offering of sacrifices to the Lord, they begin to think that their sacrifice the same way the pagans think of their sacrifice to their false gods. That God needs to feed. That God needs to drink the blood of our sacrifices. I don't know if you've ever had a friend might be a Buddhist, or go into a house of a Buddhist, or perhaps you've been to a Buddhist temple, 
in a foreign country, or maybe here, I guess, I don't know, you'll notice that around the statues that they have in their homes are frequently incenses that are burning before their gods that they worship. Oftentimes, you will even find various forms of offerings like food or drink or flowers or things like that. These offerings essentially are there to feed and appease their God that He might look favorably on them. They would maybe sacrifice, especially in days of old, would sacrifice to their gods in this way so that God, their God could drink the blood of the sacrifice because He is thirsty, they say. This seems to be the way that God's people here in Psalm 50 are beginning to think of their sacrifices. That they're providing something to God that He would otherwise lack. So he asks them in verse 13, Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? The implied answer to that rhetorical question is no. But even more than that, he says in verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Then look in verses 10 and 11, just the verses prior. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. So he's saying, What? Are you going to feed me one of my own cows? Am I not capable at any time I want to snatch a cow up from a hill if I'm hungry? The implied answer, of course, is God does get hungry. That's not why you're coming to give sacrifices, no matter what you might think. I don't need anything from you, he's saying. Does the landlord ask the tenant for shelter from the rain? No. Does the CEO ask his employee for an advance on his salary? No. That's not how this relationship works. Instead, the true offering that should be given has two primary components, and he's going to lay them out there for them. The first component is it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The purpose of their sacrifice to God is to give thanksgiving to Him. Look at verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. You're not sacrificing the animal or the grain or in today's church. You're not giving time or money or work to God so that God can continue His mission. You're not keeping God's mission afloat and you never will. Nothing that you give ever will cause God to say, well, well now that you've written that check, well, now I can keep, I can keep going with this project that I've got over here. That's not how it works. You're not providing God anything that He lacks. You're giving Him thanks for His provision. You're acknowledging His money that He's given. The primary offering that you're giving to God is gratitude for His provision for you. But how quickly... We can get it turned the other way around. 
Here, God, use this so that you can continue your mission. Woe be to us, lest we feel like we are filling God up in any way from anything that He lacks. So the first component to sacrifice is thanksgiving, he says. The second component of your sacrifice is dependence. It's thanksgiving and it's dependence. Look at verse 15. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. See how he orients their worship? Your worship is not, I'm bringing something to you, God, that I'm now contributing to your coffers and filling you up. No, he says, first of all, you're giving me thanks when you come here for my provision for you. Second, you're now in this worship confessing your dependence on me. I'm the one that provides. I'm the one that fills. I'm the one that satisfies the needy. Not you. Your sacrifice to God is a heart that admits you're dependent on Him for deliverance. This is the opposite of the attitude that they're currently approaching Him with that says God is in need and we're providing for His needs. If we aren't careful, we can quickly get our understanding of worship twisted. Even if we, at the time, are well-meaning when we do it. And even if sometimes we're listening to certain Scriptures over the others. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that worship is an act that creatures do in bowing before God who created them, paying homage to Him because He is their Creator. And that's true. At its root, the act of worship is an act of bowing down before God and paying homage to Him as your Creator. But if we're not careful, we can think of ourselves in the role of providing God some sort of glory and praise that He lacks. That you're here bowing down, and if you weren't, He wouldn't have the praise that He otherwise does have because you're here. He doesn't have praise, so we're giving Him praise so that His, what, his ego isn't bruised. You know, essentially what that does is it turns worship of God and the Christian version of worship, making God some sort of megalomaniac who needs His ego stroked in order to be satisfied. And He needs that from you. Otherwise, He's lacking. And then, in a very weird turn of events, it makes us His provider. Precisely the opposite of what worship should be. It's not what worship is. We have to be careful to understand that while we're paying homage to our Creator in worship, this is also the means by which he provides joy to you. When you come to Him in your needy state, He delivers to you joy. You are coming to be filled, and He is doing the filling. You are submitting to Him in need of deliverance, 
And He is promising you, in verse 15, deliverance in your day of trouble. So you are the needy one, and you're coming to God asking to be filled while you pay homage to Him as your Creator. So in other words, His worshipers who understand their dependence on Him and therefore offer their sacrifices with thanksgiving also are doing so understanding their position in relation to Him. I'm the needy one. You're the provider. I'm here because there is nowhere else to find joy in all the world. I am before You, O Lord, whether I am here amongst the body every week celebrating the resurrection of Christ, or whether I am at home throughout the week, Monday through Saturday. I am coming before the Lord in His Word, in prayer, in singing, because I recognize that my joy can be found nowhere else. I'm coming here to be filled so that my worship might be genuine. I am the one in need. I am the one that's dependent. I am the tenant. I am the renter. I am the borrower. I'm not the lender. I'm not the giver. I'm the one who has needs. So, and therefore, we offer our sacrifices with thanksgiving because we understand that position. Here is what I am bringing because you have given this to me. This is yours. And I hold it all in an open hand. We're not full of ourselves. We're not disillusioned. We don't come understanding that these possessions are ours. We come understanding that they're on loan to us from God. We understand ourselves as stewards, not owners. As mortal people, it's foolish to think of ourselves as owners, isn't it? These are also the ones, people who come in genuineness of worship, are the ones that call on Him in the day of trouble. He says, and He again provides deliverance for them. So even in this scenario, where we come in our thanksgiving, in our worship, God is still the giver. So the glory that you give Him is the gratitude in your heart from receiving His provision. This is precisely what He's condemning them for. They're they're coming thinking that they have everything and that they're providing for God something. This is the path of the religious who don't understand that they are actually the ones continually in need of Him to provide. John Piper in his book, The Pleasures of God, says this, When you hope in God, you show that He is strong and you are weak. That He is rich and you are poor. That He is full and you are empty. When you hope in God, you show that you are the one who has needs, not God. But second, God's Word now, we get into Psalm verse 16, where God gives a word of warning to the hypocritical worshiper. To the hypocritical worshiper. The warning of judgment comes to a Second group of people, these are not the religious, these are the hypocrites, the ones claiming to be a child of God while pushing every moral boundary as if they didn't exist at all. And you can see it there in verse 16. 
But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? Now, before we see the word wicked there and think of the world outside of Israel or outside of God's people at all, this is not who he's talking about. He calls them wicked, but they are very clearly still considering themselves part of His people, the group of Israel. He says to them, What right have you to recite My statutes or take My covenant on your lips? They've obviously participated in these covenant rituals and have have heard and known the Word of God all their lives. Now, it's also possible that this is the same group that he's been talking to this whole time. But even if it is, God's now honing in on a different aspect of their worship. And namely, it's the hypocrisy that they bring into worship. They're coming to fulfill these obligations of worship, but in their lives, they're flat out denying Him by their lifestyles. They take His covenant on their lips. They recite the Psalms. They sing the songs. They pray the prayers. But He goes on in verse 17. You hate discipline. You cast My words behind you. In other words, there's a refusal to listen to the words of correction. Like Tom read in the proverb earlier in our service. They refuse to listen to the word of correction. Literally, he says, they discard the words of correction behind their backs. They take it as if it's nothing, and they throw it behind them into the trash as they walk away. So the words of God, in other words, go in one ear and out the other. And instead of heeding God's words of correction, he goes on. They hear the words of the preacher but find every reason to discard what He said. They hear the words of their spouse, but they argue their way out of an apology. They hear the words of a friend, but they dismiss it because she thinks she's so good. She's got it all together. They read the words in the Bible, but reason that it's not talking about me. This is far frequently, far more frequently, what is the hypocrisy in our worship. That we don't read the Bible with eyes tuned into our own hearts. We think of all the people that really need to hear that sermon. Man, if, if that person was just here in the pew right now, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wait till they post that online, then I'm going to go copy that link and send it to them just drop it in their little news feed on Facebook or get their attention to it in one way or another. Maybe they'll listen and be convicted. Never thinking that God doesn't have them in this pew. He's got you here. Is it possible He might be saying something to you? But what is it that they're guilty of? What is it that they're really doing? If you look in verse 18, He says, if you see a thief... You're pleased with them, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. 
He says these offenders are typically known one of two ways. First, by the company they keep, and or second, by the things they say. They're known by the company they keep and by the things they say. In regards to the, th- the, the first, by the company they keep, notice in verse 18 that he isn't necessarily saying that they participate in the stealing or participate in the adultery. Read it again. Look there in your text in verse 18. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him. It doesn't say you're stealing. He says you're pleased with the thief. And you keep company with adulterers. Not necessarily that you're committing the adultery, but that you keep company with the adulterers. Notice that the bar is far higher than merely committing adultery, but keeping company. So they're reciting the covenant when they go to church. They're remembering the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. But then when they live their lives, they live them with the adulterers, with the thieves, with the slanderers. And they're in no way repulsed by it. You understand those commandments are there. Not just that you may hear them and recite them, but that you might also take them to heart. That you might be repulsed by the notion of adultery. That you might turn away at the thought of slander or thieving. It stands to reason that Christians, obviously in our world, will interact with those who do not share our values. This is not a verse that says, how dare you go on the mission field and be surrounded by people who steal and who commit adultery and who slander. You should be ashamed for even associating with that kind of person in the world. Paul tells us, you'd have to go out of the world to do that. You can't possibly get away from all of that. We will have them over for dinner. We will work side by side with them sometimes. And we won't flinch when they respond the way unbelieving people respond to the circumstances of life. We understand that that's going to be the case. You're going to work next to people who curse. And you're not going to be repulsed by it because you hear it all the time. Right? Yes, of course you are. It's not saying you can only get a job at a Christian bookstore. You can find one that still exists. But you understand it's one thing to have relationships with people who you know need the Gospel. Who need to understand who God is and what He's done for them in the person and work of Christ. Knowing that if you're not in their life, the chances that they have of meeting Jesus are virtually zilch. This is how Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors, by the way. Doesn't he tell the Pharisees? It's the sick who need the physician. In Jesus' absence, as he's reigning at the right hand of the Father, you are the physician. So you are to go and you are to minister to them. That's not what this verse is talking about. This has in mind those who desire the companionship of the world. The people who represent this worldview bring them a strange comfort. 
They desire their company and their companionship not for missional purposes, but for envy of their way of life. I admire how free you are. What a free spirit you are. You have no one restricting you. This is the person who goes to church, but is the socialite outside of church that always goes to the party, even if she is the only sober one there. But she will never turn down the party. The church-going type whose friends never seem to be the ones inside the church. Always friends with those outside the church. That's their circle. The man whose Facebook photos are frequently with provocatively dressed women. Why is he always around them? Because they bring him a strange comfort. That's the hypocrisy that God is zooming in on here. But you notice that's the first identifier. The second identifier of the hypocrite is that he's constantly slandering others behind their back. Someone who's known as a gossip, a pot stir, a busybody. They're usually pretty easy to identify because frequently they have a problem with somebody else, but you notice that they never go to that person and tell them about it. Everybody else knows the problem they have with that person, except for the person they have a problem with. That's the person that he's zooming in on here. That's the level of hypocrisy. They don't really care about settling the problem, but they also never shut up about it. If you think you might be in that category, all you have to do, very easy, just ask your small group tonight, is this me? And if everybody looks down at the floor, the answer is yes. It's easy. Or ask that brutally honest Christian friend. You have that person in your life that is just always just brutally honest. Now, sometimes you don't ask them because you don't want to know. Do I look fat in this? Is this, this isn't flattering, is it? You don't ask them because they're going to tell you the truth, right? Okay? But when you really need to know, do I have something in my teeth? When you really need to know, Is this describing me? You know that person will tell you. Ask that person. That's the one you need to to ask. They'll tell you. Listen to God's words in verse 21. These things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. So in other words, they're going about doing this, and they think to themselves, whether it's the hypocrisy of you know, hanging out, the company they keep, or the hypocrisy of the things that they say, and slander, and all those kinds of things, they think that because God is silent, 
about their hypocrisy, or when they're in the church, they don't feel the voice of conviction, or when the pastor says those things, it goes straight over my head, or when my friends point those out, or when my spouse points that out, or when somebody else points that out to me, it doesn't, it seems to go in one ear or out the other. When she said that to me, she ended up apologizing to me. You see how that conversation worked its way out? Because they never feel that conviction. They are under the assumption that God is on their side. See, you thought, God says, I was one like you. You thought I was on your team, or better yet, you were on my team. But now I am very clearly laying this charge before you. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to continue to slander others? You do so thinking that, well, because I wasn't immediately struck with leprosy, God must be okay with it. But you need to understand what he's saying here. What this whole psalm is doing. It's laying the charge before his people because he doesn't want Judgment Day to go badly for them. He wants you to, he's giving you fair warning. So, so sometimes we get into this routine where we're going to church and we're participating in the worship services, and we've listened to umpteen thousand different sermons over the course of our life, and I was baptized at eight, and I was born and raised in the church nursery, and I've never known a day when I wasn't at church unless I was sick. I mean, I've been there, snow, rain, sleet, or hail. They've always been able to count on me. It's my tithe that kept the church afloat, don't you know? And we get into the habit of thinking, therefore, on Judgment Day, I'm good. You understand? Because I'm one of the good ones. I've always contributed to God's needs. And we wouldn't phrase it like that. But that's essentially what we're saying. Because I've done all these things, on Judgment Day, God owes me a favorable result. And God is stepping in here and saying, Are you slandering others? Are you gossiping? Are you tearing down? Are you backbiting? What about the company you keep? What about your heart when you come into worship? Are you here because you want to be here? Are you here out of a love for me? Or are you here out of a sense of obligation? Because if it's anything other than thanksgiving and dependence, then you're essentially trying to put me in your debt. And it doesn't work that way. God is always the landlord, and we are always the tenant. God is always the owner. We are always the renter. Now, I can't pretend to know all of the motivations that are in each of our hearts that bring us into church week in and week out. I can't even know all my own But there is a desire in all of us to view this time as satisfying some sort of obligation that God has placed on us. I'm here because I would feel guilty if I weren't here on Sunday or if I was on a lake somewhere. And depending on how this week went, you might feel like that right now. I'd rather be out on a lake. But you have to understand something fundamental to the Christian gospel message. You can never fulfill the righteous requirements to
to make it to heaven. You can't do it. If you could, God would owe you eternal life. But Paul tells us in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It's fundamental to his argument that every single person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God which he gets to in another few verses in that chapter. That you cannot fulfill the righteous obligations that God has for humanity. You cannot do it. No matter how hard you try. You and I come to God needing to be saved. Needing Him to be the one who provides salvation for us. We need Him to fulfill the righteous demands that He has for us. That's the only way we get out of this thing. That's the only way we make it out alive is if God Himself actually fulfills His own obligations for righteousness. That's it. See, this is the center of the Christian Gospel. God's own Son, Jesus Christ, fulfilled all the righteous requirements that God ever placed on His people. And He died as a sacrifice for His people. Forgiving them for their sins. And He rose again on the third day to offer them eternal life. And so now, all the rewards that He earned, He shares with you. And it's available to you by faith. Confessing your neediness of His salvation that He provides. You see? Even in the Christian Gospel, this psalm comes to root, finds its fulfillment in Christ, who provided for us the righteousness that we require, so that when we come to Him in worship, we are still the ones in need, and He is still the one providing. The heart of the Christian Gospel is that we are needy. God is the one that fills up. God is the one that saves us. God is the one that brings us joy. So there are two ways that you could approach God. That you may be approaching God this morning. Who is king and in this passage judge. And both ways look nearly identical to everyone on the outside. So in other words, most people are going to look at you and not know which way you are approaching God this morning. One way pays homage to the king out of a sense of obligation. Sing the songs, pray the prayers, because you're obligated to do so. The other pays homage to the king out of a deep-seated sense of joy in your heart for what he has done for you. Notice that in this psalm, both the religious in the first part of the psalm and the hypocritical their motivations for worshiping the Lord are very similar. They are obliged to bow down. Now maybe it's traditions that bring them there. I've 
grown up in the church and I've always been there doing that. That's what I do on Sunday. It's my routine, maybe, that drives them into the worship service. Maybe it's returning the favor to God as a form of repayment. Well, God did this for me. Now I'm obligated. I've got to go do this for Him. But the fact remains that they're here out of some sense of obligation. For the unrighteous, for the wicked, for the religious, and the hypocrites. The only way to worship God is out of duty or obligation. Notice that's not what God identifies as glorifying Him in this passage. Our worship is not a repayment, He says. Because God doesn't need anything. It's certainly not so that God will pay us. Pay it forward kind of situation. Because God is no man's debtor. Our worship is admitting our neediness. It's offering thanks with genuine hearts to the only one who can satisfy our deepest longings. See, when it comes down to it, the one who experiences the salvation of God is the one whose heart is deeply and truly satisfied by Him. And that is a work, friend, that only the Spirit of God can do. Only God can create that in you. A deep desire to be truly satisfied by Him. He orders His way, not so that God will repay Him with eternal life, but because God's way satisfies His heart. What is it that creates in you the deepest desire for worship. Why is it that you come to a church? Why is it that you get up in the mornings and read your Bibles, pray your prayers and sing your songs? Why is it that you go before God in worship, bowing your heart down before Him? Why is it that His Word satisfies the deepest longings of your heart? That sense of joy that you have in worship is Spirit-born. That's a work God does in His children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would bring us to repentance where we find our sense of worship is lacking. That we're here out of obligation or we think perhaps we're filling up something that you're lacking. Pray that you would help us see the error of our ways, the sin that is involved there, the idolatry that would be present there in thinking, first of all, that you are a God that needs filling. That you have needs that a human can meet. That we are God and that we have to provide for you. Forgive us for that way of thinking, that sinful idolatry that's in our hearts. It's there in every single one of us, and from time to time it rears its ugly head. It may be there very present in each one of our hearts this morning. I pray that you would shine your light on it and bring us to confess it as sin. That we may live in the light. That we may truly worship you as the one who satisfies our deepest longings, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. 
If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.